This podcast is brought to you by Villanova University on iTunes U. Please visit us on itunes.villanova.edu. Thank you, Vince. Uh, recovering is good. I was going to say lapsed, but recovering, and maybe recovering and lapsed was, is both. Well, thanks very much for that kind introduction. And Andrew, thank you for uh, helping make it possible for me to be here today and all the great work that you and Vince now. I'm missing him as the AD, but uh, you've got a great person in him to help lead um, the Morad Center to great heights here in the sports world. So it's a pleasure to be here and always happy to be here in wildcat country. Um, and I'm especially happy to be at this forum and hope I can contribute. Um, I pro Vince promised that I, I didn't have to give any sort of straight legal talks here. Uh, you've got amazing panels to take care of that. Um, uh, and, and really my, my, my hope is that I can perhaps give some context um, about Title IX and, and some things that at least are on my mind and the mind of other women's sports advocates as we all think out you know, what the next 40 some odd years holds for the future of this piece of legislation which in my view uh, truly has been one of the most impactful laws uh, ever enacted uh, in this country. Um, in the early days of the WNBA, and, and Vince alluded to uh, my role there, um, I uh, was in fact there at the beginning, uh, help, helping launch the league, and then I did serve as the, uh, the president for the first eight years. Um, I can tell you that one of my great thrills uh, was having the chance to meet Birch Bayh and Patsy Mink, personally, um, who of course co-chaired uh, the Title IX bill in the Senate in the case of Birch Bayh and in the House in the case of Patsy Mink. Um, Senator Bayh, I'm sure you all know, uh, often called the father of Title IX and whom I came to know personally, um, revealed that it was his first wife Marvella who inspired him to press the case to colleagues in the Senate um, about the importance of, a, of expanding opportunities for women and girls in public education. Um, Marvella uh, herself wasn't an athlete or even a sports fan. Um, Birch would say that when she came to sporting events, she would just read the newspaper. Um, but she was the following. She was a straight-A student. She was class president um, and a national speech champion in high school uh, who had been denied admission to her dream college, the University of Virginia, because state law at that time prohibited women from attending. Um, that didn't change until 1970, and I'm just gonna ask you to park that thought, okay, for a moment. I'm gonna come back to that in a few minutes. Um, so Marvella was uh, apparently very passionate about the need for equal educational opportunities, and that had a big impact on Senator Bayh, and he has been very forthcoming um, in publicly acknowledging uh, her role as a driving force in the in the law. Um, you may have heard this earlier, and I apologize if I, if I wasn't here, if this is repetitive, but Title IX was technically an amendment to the Higher Education Act of 1965, uh, and I found it interesting that in remarks uh, on the Senate floor during the law's uh, authorization debate in 1972, um, Senator Bayh said the following, and I quote, we are all familiar with the stereotype of women as pretty things who go to college to find a husband, go on to graduate school because they want a more interesting husband, <laughs> and finally marry, have children, and never work again. 
the desire of many schools not to waste a man's place on a woman stems from such stereotyped notions. But the facts absolutely contradict these myths about the weaker sex, and it is time to change our operating assumptions. He went on to say that while the impact of this amendment would be far-reaching, it is not a panacea. It is, however, an important first step in the effort to provide for the women of America something that is rightfully theirs, an equal chance to attend the schools of their choice, to develop the skills they want, and to apply those skills with the knowledge that they will have a fair chance to secure the jobs of their choice with equal pay for equal work. Uh, so that was Birch Bayh in 1972. What a man. Uh, Title IX, of course, became law on June 23, 1972, and while, uh, of course, very broad in reach, um, I, I would venture to say it's, in fact, best known for expanding opportunities uh, for female athletes. Um, so my experience with Title IX uh, is, in fact, both personal and professional. First, let me give you the personal part. Um, I grew up not real far from here, uh, my hometown, um, Pennington, New Jersey, uh, is outside of Trenton, uh, and my uh, childhood was spent in the decade before Title IX was passed. It sort of pains me to talk about how many years ago that was, so I won't give you the exact number. Um, it was the 60s. Um, and in fact, chances for girls to play on sports teams back then were, were few and far between, if not non-existent. Um, thankfully, my dad um, loved sports. He made a career out of it uh, himself. He was a, varying times, a, uh, he went to the Trenton State College, now known as College of New Jersey. He was, played sports. He went on to become a coach and a basketball referee uh, and an athletic director. Um, and so I grew up in an environment which was um, sports intensive. Um, and my brother and I literally feasted on family sports activities, thanks to my dad of all kinds. Um, but outside of the family, my competitive opportunities uh, up until high school were, were really limited. I was, I was a member of our town swim team, the famed Pennbrook Club in Pennington. Um, but that was it. Um, there, there were no other chances that I had growing up to play on, on teams. Um, at my junior high school, this, this dearth continued. Um, the only sports offering for girls at my junior high school, Timberlane Junior High in Pennington, uh, was cheerleading. And because that was all there was, um, I, uh, I was sort of, you know, feeling like I had to try out for that. Um, and I remember um, very clearly, um, you know, practicing endlessly in front of the mirror in my bedroom. To this very day, I still had this cheer. It was team cheer, hit it you know, with the hand that goes here and this way and, you know, go team, I can still do that cheer because I practiced it so many times. And so what a dark day it was when they posted the final roster on the locker room door and my name wasn't on it. So traumatic, I got cut from cheerleading. I am a frustrated cheerleader at heart. <laughs> um, just, you know, little known fact. So this was um, not only traumatic, but it was life altering because um, it really did make me determined uh, never to be, you know, cut, for, cut from anything uh, ever again and probably planted in the back of my mind this notion that, you know, something wasn't right here. You know, that the boys got a chance to have that time, you know, basketball and soccer and other things, and, and the girls were sort of left in the supporting role. So Title IX was passed when I was in eighth grade. Um, I have to confess I was oblivious, like all eighth graders are, um, to anything other than their own lives. And so I didn't uh, understand the magnitude of it at the time, 
but it was, of course, um, good news and boded well for my participation prospects when I entered high school the next year, um, in fall of 1973, uh, and that was my high school, Hopewell Valley Central High School in Pennington, go Bulldogs. Um, the other bit of good news was that my dad, I mentioned he was an athletic director, he was actually the athletic director at my high school. Um, so one plus one, became three, meaning not only was this law now in the books and, and schools had an obligation to open things up, but of course there was my dad with, you know, with me that he had to sort of look in the eye at dinner every night um, with this personal interest um, in seeing girls uh, get to do more. And so he set to work uh, building out the sports offerings at my high school and later he became an important champion for girls high school uh, and rec sports in the Trenton area. So I went on and I played field hockey and basketball and I ran track in high school. And then when I graduated in 1977, um, I was very fortunate, again, Title IX kicking in here, um, to be offered a scholarship to play basketball at the University of Virginia. Um, I'll go back to my earlier comment. You know, we now know women had been admitted to UVA with full pri privileges not long before I got there, 1970. And the first class of graduating women at UVA was 1974. And so there I came just a few years later as an incoming first year. Um, so while the women's sports programs at that time were in existence, um, they were still very much at the ground floor. So to be more exact, there was one scholarship, um, one, one and only one for the women's basketball team at that time. And my coach, uh, being resourceful, um, split it up. Um, so half went to me, and the other half went to another incoming first year, also from New Jersey, coincidentally, and here's how it worked. Um, I got tuition and fees, and she got room and board. So I got to go to class, and she got to eat. <laughs> that was how it worked. Um, all the other players that year were walk-ons. Um, the men's team at that time, in contrast, was, was really at the apex. Um, I mean, they were so good, the likes of that haven't been seen until recent years, really, at UVA. They, they were led by the famed Ralph Sampson, went on to become an NBA star and a Hall of Famer. Uh, Jeff Lamp, colleague of mine, one of the Kentucky boys came in, he played in the NBA. There were other great players there. Jeff Jones, now coaching at American. Um, and they were playing um, at the Final Four level. Um, so the contrast, you can imagine, between the state of the two programs was stark and very, very much inequitable despite the fact that the law was in the books. But the good news is that under the leadership of my coach, Debbie Ryan, now retired, uh, and our athletics director at that time, Gene Corrigan, some of you may have heard of, uh, very well respected in college sports circles, and he would later uh, go on to become the commissioner of the Atlantic Coast Conference, things got better pretty quickly. Um, grants and aid were added every year, so that by the time I graduated, every, every woman on the team was receiving aid of some kind, full or partial. Um, we saw improvements in uniforms and travel. You know, we went from cars and vans that the coaches themselves drove. Okay, I'm telling you, you don't want to lose a game at Carolina <laughs> and be in the van that your head coach is driving back to Charlottesville that night. Okay, you don't want to be there, and I was, and this is sort of road rage 101. Uh, but we moved past that, we got to luxury buses. I think I even flew once by the time we left. Um, so things were better. Um, our record, uh, which was an abysmal uh, eight and 17, something like that, my first year, got better. We won 20 games, for what it's worth, my last two years. We got ranked as high as number 11 in the country my fourth year, um, which was a great source of pride um, to me and my teammates. 
Um, other women's sports teams at UVA were added or expanded while I was there. Uh, and importantly, uh, the year after I graduated, in 1982, the NCAA um, formally replaced the AIAW, the Association for Intercollegiate Athletics for Women, which was at that time the governing body for women's sports. It was separated from the NCAA. In 1982, the NCAA came in um, and became the umbrella organization for women's college sports. And that, in turn, led to many advancements nationally in administration and championship management. And so now, of course, you know, women's college sports are uh, at another level entirety. Um, entirely across the board uh, here in the Big East and elsewhere. And so you can imagine for somebody like me, the changes in the landscape from you know, 40 some odd years ago until now have been, uh, have been really extraordinary. Um, I can't lie to you, it would have been nice to enjoy some of the accoutrements um, that female student athletes today have as a matter of course. Um, but I, I can tell you I wouldn't have traded my time at UVA for anything, and I certainly wouldn't be standing here today uh, had, that not ex had that experience uh, not been part of my life. So I have uh, a personal sense of gratefulness to Senator By and Congresswoman Mink and, of course, Title IX. Uh, I'm not alone as a Title IX beneficiary. Many other women uh, have also benefited from the doors that the uh, law has opened. Um, I may, may have heard stats earlier, I'll just toss out a few. The number of girls participating in high school sports has grown from uh, 295,000 nationwide in 72 to more than 3.5 million today. At the intercollegiate level, the number has jumped from 30,000 to more than 200,000. Um, and sports not quite on the radar screen. When I was in high school and college, like volleyball and lacrosse and even women's soccer, my high school did not have a women's soccer team when I was there. Um, these sports have, of course, established their niches and seem poised to, uh, to keep growing. Um, you're, you're very fortunate um, to be able to hear today from, from many experts who Vince and Andrew have assembled, uh, whose knowledge about the intricacies of Title IX, um, frankly, far exceed mine. And I, uh, I, I can't even profess um, to know what they know, so what I'd like to offer um, to the dialogue instead are are some broader observations about the ripple effects of Title IX and, and what work I think um, remains to be done um, to fortify this connection never to go away again uh, between women and sports. Um, the first indirect benefit of Title IX, which I have also personally borne witness to, has been the way it's laid the foundation uh, for the growth in women's professional sports, especially women's pro team sports. Um, I can tell you without um, without any qualification that there would have been no WNBA launch in 1997 without Title IX. Um, it, it simply would not have been possible uh, for those of us at the NBA at that time to pull a sustainable women's pro basketball league out of thin air without the base that had been provided by high school and youth um, and college programs. It just would never have happened. In fact, before we launched the WNBA, we did our homework and determined that uh, something like 15 or 16 prior attempts to start women's professional basketball leagues had failed. And some of it was because they just were ahead of their time. You know, they tried to do it too soon. And it really required the buildup of base over a period of years that Title IX made possible for us to do it. There were other great things going on at that time also. Um, Women's college game, of course, was cresting. This was the early 90s when you had UConn playing Tennessee regularly. 
had a great rivalry there. ESPN was starting to pay attention. Um, you had the women's Final Four growing, widely anticipated every year. And we had, importantly, the Atlanta Olympics in 1996, which were here in the US, favorable time zone. Um, and it was sort of the year of the Olympics, for those of you who may have remembered it and those of you who were too young to know about it. Women's basketball got a gold medal, women's soccer got a gold medal, women's softball got a gold medal, and it was huge, and it was here. And it was on that, on the back of that, that the WNBA was sort of born. Um, so the point here is you can't have a penthouse, if you think of a pro league as a penthouse, without a ground floor or two. Um, and if you think about the national teams and the pro leagues as the penthouses, and the colleges and the high schools and the youth leagues are at the ground floor, then you understand that you need both. Um, you need to have the, the latter in order to have the former, being the pro leagues, and the latter, these, these, these underfloors, if you will, were a direct result of Title IX. Um, the second indirect benefit of Title IX um, has been, I think, the career paths of all the women like me who played sports in college and then armed with these life skills um, were able to march off into the real world and make something of themselves professionally. Um, Ernst & Young, uh, together with ESPNW, which for those of you who don't know, is a, uh, a, a platform of growing importance, a digital platform of growing importance, which was established a few years ago by ESPN to provide sort of aggregated news and features and video and other content about women in sports. It's not just about women's sports, I would add. It's sort of about different types of sports, and in some cases it's about women's angles on those sports. But it's an important platform for the women's sports community, and the two groups, Ernst & Young and ESPNW, have conducted some research um, that has, in fact, corroborated the connection between competing in athletics and later success in the workplace for women. Um, in a survey, a recent survey of 400 female executives, they learned that 52% of C-suite women turned out to have played sports at the college or university level. So more than half of the women at C-suite level have played sports in college. 74% of the women, even the ones that didn't play sports in college, agreed that a background in sports helps or might have helped them more um, in terms of accelerating leadership and career potential. Uh, and again, personally, I can attest that the skills that I picked up playing basketball at, at Virginia have, uh, have in fact helped me to this very day. So there are important and broad outcomes to Title IX that really go beyond the sports pages, they go beyond compliance, might have been envisioned by Senator Bayh since he seemed so forward-looking based on his earlier quotes. Um, and these out, uh, you know, outcomes, I think, um, just help validate um, how important these sports have become and, um, and how, you know, how, how, how valuable they are in helping women secure and succeed not only um, while they're playing sports, but in the jobs of their choice when they get out of school. Um, in terms of work that remains to be done in, in what I would call this post-Title IX world, I, I have three observations that I, I guess I would share. And I would pre pre preface this uh, by noting that it, it really isn't my aim to portray the glass as half empty, but really um, just to constructively add to the mix of thoughts that, that many people have, particularly women's sports advocates, about where, you know, where do we go from here? What's next, uh, 40 plus years in? Um, the first one, the first observation I, I would make has to do with leadership positions in the sports business. Um, this is sort of technically out of the scope of Title IX, but it's difficult, I, I think, not to expect, um, not to hope, 
um, that this increase in the number of women who are playing sports will in turn lead to um, a growing role by women in decision-making positions. Um, and again, not just in industry or in the C-suite, as I alluded to earlier, or in government, um, but, but in the sports world itself. Um, and so the question is, are we there? Are we there yet? Well, let me give you some background. When I joined the NBA, uh, I started off there as a staff attorney, 1988. That was my first job in sports. Um, I can tell you that the number of mid-level and senior women working in the sports industry was very, very small. It was very low. I, I mean, I'm just going to, I had no women to look up to when I took my job at the NBA. Um, and I spent the formative years of my career that way. Um, there were very few women working for teams. Jeannie Buss, I think at that time, was the president or near EVP at the Lakers. Her father, of course, Jerry Buss, owned the team. The, what was then called the Washington Bullets, now known as the Wizards, a woman named Susan O'Malley, who worked for then Abe Poland, was the head of operations there, and that was a big deal, so they sort of became a little bit of a sisterhood there, but that was about it. And in our office, there were very few women. And fortunately for me, I had supportive male mentors um, who, who opened doors for me. They included the likes of David Stern, um, who is a mentor to this day, and Russ Granick, the longtime deputy commissioner at the NBA, and I had the privilege of knowing Dave Gavitt, of course, the founder of the Big East Conference in 1979. I had a chance to work with Dave after he founded the Big East. He became the president of USA Basketball, so he was running the national team program, and I had a chance to learn from Dave. And these are people that I looked up to, and they were great. And they took care of me, and they nursed me along, and opened doors for me, um, including the opportunities to lead the WNBA when it was formed. And I took a turn as the chair of USA Basketball. And ultimately, because of that, we all know how important mentors are, uh, I was able to advance in my career. So that was the good news. And the good news, too, is well, you know, that the landscape has changed since that time, very dramatically in many ways. The number of women now entering the sports possession, position, business profession and assuming key posts um, is much higher than it was when I started out. Um, but I can tell you, I, I'm, I am at times surprised and sometimes discouraged that the, number, the numbers are where they are um, and, not, and not higher. Um, in the world of intercollegiate athletics, um, now 46% of the student athletes competing at the Division I level are female, but less than 10% uh, of the 350 current Division I athletic directors are women. The statistic, for, interestingly, for Division I commissioners is a little better story. Uh, there are now 33 of us. Uh, one league has sort of two commissioners. I won't explain it. So there's 32 Division I conferences, but 33 commissioners. Um, and there's nine. Currently nine of those are, are women. So that's an encouraging story. Um, but to this day, I can tell you that I still attend high-level meetings where I'm just one of a handful of women, or in some cases, the only woman in the room. So this, this dichotomy between the number of women who play and, wa and watch, that's another important indicator, I think also made possible by Title IX, women who watch sports at all levels, and the number who are serving as decision makers in leagues, networks, sports marketing companies, intercollegiate athletic departments, and Olympic sports organizations um, ca can be perplexing at times, especially at a point in history when, as we know, the influence of women in other sectors of society continues to grow, and we may, may well have, in the not-too-distant future, a President of the United States who's a woman. And that's about as high as it gets. 
Um, in conversations I've had over the years on this subject with uh, senior sports exec executives, I, I hear differing views on, on why. Uh, sometimes here companies don't know how to identify women for these jobs, or their boards, that the women they do find just aren't quite qualified yet, they're not quite there. Uh, others think that there are uh, unconscious biases um, at work and they're keeping sports organizations in an unconscious way from pushing for a diverse works workforce. Um, so there are, you know, these are the articulated reasons. Um, but, but with that, it remains my hope that more can be done to continue to allow women to make progress as leaders. And, and there may be ways through industry-wide management and governance, targets and timelines, uh, more effective mentoring for rising stars. I, I know I make it my business. If I identify a talented woman on my staff, I try to be there for her and guide her along. Uh, flexible maternity policies. I went through my experience at the NBA having two children and that's a whole nother lecture of what that was like to come back from that and to prove, you know, that I was serious about my career. Um, and maybe sometimes I've thought if there was a creation of a central data bank of candidates by sports search firms um, or networks um, or companies that just needed women on boards or in other positions, that had a quality pool of women to consider when top jobs became available, that could be a great service to the business. Um, but in any event, keeping up the dialogue about what women bring to the table and the qualities and skills they need to be effective leaders, you know, has to continue. I would also add, I mentioned to Vince and Andrew, I spent the last couple of days with some of the other Division I commissioners, um, and it was noted there that increasing diversity and inclusion remains a very hot topic uh, within the NCA membership. This, uh, this particular point was recently cited, there was a press release on it a few days ago, as a priority by the NCA Board of Governors. This is the highest entity now within the NCAA. And so now we're gonna have a chance to see what um, specific additional efforts um, maybe can be developed to help move the ball forward um, in the months and the years beyond. So that's one. The second observation I have has to do what I, what I would call um, the dangers, the dangers of an entitlement mindset. Um, while battles, battles remain, the participata participation front, I know, and compliance with Title IX on campuses and high schools uh, has to be monitored <coughs> to make sure that women are getting their fair share of opportunities and benefits and that inequities remain addressed. Um, it's important in my view, having been in this business now for almost 30 years, that, this, that a reflexive cry of equity not be used as a crutch or a substitute for creativity, common sense, and self-help in supporting women's sports programs and devising sensible women's sports competition models. Um, in a related vein, I think it's incumbent on women's sports coaches and administrators not to simply rely on rigid comparisons with the men uh, in staking their claim to the benefits that Title IX mandates. In short, different doesn't always mean inequitable. That's my view. Um, I'm going to use an example, as an example the NCAA Women's Basketball Championship. Um, this is the crown jewel of all of the 40-plus women's postseason national championship events that the NCAA administers nationally. There has, in fact, been a very lively discussion within the NCAA for the past couple of years about equity in the context of the tournament. Now, query whether the NCAA is under Title IX mandates as opposed to institutions, but I'm going to put that aside for a second. The expectation on this point is that they are. Um, and in fact, the NCAA Women's Tournament is essentially administered in the same way as the men's. 
same number of teams, same competitive format, national seating in the early rounds, so naming players have to get on planes and go travel around the country. Same travel party size, which includes room for cheer squads and bands, per diems, all the same. And so as a result of this, this means that the cost structure for both tournaments are more or less comparable. It's a very different story on the revenue side. On the men's side, the tournament, needless to say, generates considerable ticket sales revenue, due in large part to the success of the men's final four, which now is being played in domes, and the number and the price of the tickets sold are very, very substantial. On the women's side, the tournament also generates revenue, which is, which is good news. But the amount is much less than the men's. It's about 15 times less, to be exact. And as a result, the women's tournament is operating at a significant loss. In fact, of the 89 sports that the NCAA administers nationally among the three divisions, women's basketball is in 89th place when you look at the P&L of each sport. And the 88th team is ahead of it by millions of dollars. It's worth noting also that certain games at the women's tournament are conducted at neutral sites, which makes coaches happy because ask any coach if he wants to play on the home floor of an oppo opponent, particularly at tournament time, and you're going to get one answer only. The answer is, you know, forget it. But it also makes it less likely that good crowds are going to turn out, which means fewer tickets are sold, fewer fans are in the building, and of course less revenue. Um, Student-athletes have been surveyed about this, and they say that they would prefer fuller buildings with fans of the opposing teams over empty buildings. Even if the fans, you know, are sort of yelling and everything, they want people in the building. They want to be able to show off their, their skills. Um, so why are neutral sites being used? Well, the best answer I can figure is that the men do it, so that the women have to do it too. Women sports advocates, I know, say that revenue generation or lack of it is irrelevant to the equity evaluation and shouldn't come into play. Uh, that what matters is, you know, equitable treatment, and that's, that's important, of course. But I'll tell you that others with more of a business eye, and I put myself in that camp thanks to my WNBA upbringing, where there was no Title IX. You know, we, I was telling Andrew earlier, the first time our players unionized, they came in and they, their opening lines were, the men get this, the men get four million a year, and the minimum salary is a million, and they fly chartered every game, and you know, you're paying us X, and it's coach, and it's a different hotel. And they kind of said, you know, the Title IX reflex was, it's gotta be the same. And the answer back was, you know, I said, I've been there, I know what you're thinking. I said, but there's no Title IX here. This is about the marketplace. You know, the equation of the revenue equation. And so, you know, it took a while for them to understand, you know, that if the NBA was making two billion and we were making a fraction, there was a correlation. And that's the way it is in the pros. And so, you know, people like me have, unfortunately, I suppose, a bit of a mindset that way. But that said, um, I think there should, at the very least, and I'm, and I'm not saying that women's college sports are that. I, I, I get all that. But I do think, I do think that there should be more of a willingness to, su to, su to support um, alternative models. Uh, and if there is a reluctance to cut costs because of equity, then people should at least be more open to the kind of bold thinking that would help on the, on the revenue side, like using home courts instead of neutral sites. It would be an easy fix, and, and people at this point have been reluctant to go down that path. And there could well, frankly, be a variety of other reasons to conduct a women's event or a sport in a different way. Um, again, um, different doesn't always mean inequitable, and I would hope that people in the women's sports community can sort of find some, some ground on that.
The theme of taking affirmative steps to help ourselves carries forward in two other ways, which I want to note. One, I do believe strongly coaches in women's sports have to acknowledge their responsibility to get out in the community and to directly uh, curry relationships of the kind that can lead to fan and sponsor support. Great coaches of yesteryear did just that. I mean, a Pat Summit, Tennessee, Jody Conrad at Texas, they weren't just doing their jobs on the court. They were great coaches. They knew their X's and O's, but they were also the faces of their programs. And they got out there and they did it. Uh, and their fan bases that those two programs enjoy is a large result, not only of winning, but also of the work that they did to build it, to build it personally. And Harry Peretta has done the same here at Villanova. Uh, I really believe strongly that coaches today need to embrace their dual role on this as well. The second way that advocates of women's sports in the collegiate space can help themselves, I believe, is in the area of philanthropy. Uh, I'm absolutely convinced that there's untapped donor potential among the legions of former female student athletes who perhaps received a full ride for sports when they went to college and now 10 or 20 or 30 or 40 years later, they have some affluence and they're in a position to give back to their alma maters. Um, in my experience, you know, university and athletics development representatives should be working aggressively to reach out to these female alums and take advantage uh, of their giving potential and everything that that could mean for funding. It can't be a couple of high revenue men's sports um, and a small cadre of, of male donors who are carrying the funding burden. Women have to step up and do their part. And I can tell you, I write a check every year to the University of Virginia. I tell them not to put it to the football team. I tell them to do academic advising. Um, because I believe strongly that, that women like me um, need to do their part, period. Um, my third and last observation has to do with the state of girls and women's sports globally. Um, as Vince noted, I served for eight years as the U.S. representative to the International Basketball Federation. It has authority over basketball in many parts of the world. And I can attest that many countries are simply decades behind us um, in what they're doing or not for girls and women who want to play and work in sports in their countries. Um, Title IX is completely unique. Uh, the likes of it, the force of it, just doesn't exist outside of the U.S., and I believe that has very much impacted the pace of progress elsewhere. There are many parts of the world where cultural and resource impediments are proving very difficult for girls and women sports advocates to overcome, and I include Africa, parts of Latin America, the Gulf states, to name a few. Um, whether laws comparable to Title IX um, could be enacted elsewhere, and, and if not, how those countries might advance remains to be seen, and I, and I hope this is an area that can be monitored. Um, in the boardroom, the lack of gender diversity glo globally is also glaring. Um, and this is noteworthy because we have an Olympics coming in just a few months. It's anticipated, in fact, that more than 45%, almost 50% of the women, of the athletes competing next year at the Rio Olympics will be, will be female. But I can tell you that women are visibly rep underrepresented on the boards of the International Olympic Committee, international federations like the one I served on, and many national Olympic committees. Um, FIBA, you know, again, which about which I have firsthand knowledge, they did a restructuring in the last year, and they came out of it with an executive committee without a single female representative in a sport that has this incredible global reach. Their executive committee, which is their primary decision-making body, doesn't have a single representative. And despite this resounding appeal of the Women's World Cup in soccer, FIFA's executive committee only has um, I'm currently, in fact, part of a small skunk group that includes executives from Ernst & Young and ESPNW and some others, and we're actually trying to figure out if there are any solutions that can be devised on this, particularly, again, with the looming spotlight on female athletes this summer at the Olympics. Nothing to announce here, but, but stay tuned. 
And then finally, I'll just close by saying I know that the next panel is going to be talking about Title IX in the context of sexual violence on campus. Um, this isn't a legal point. I'll leave that to the experts. But what I would add here is that efforts are being made to bring heightened attention to this topic uh, on campuses uh, through a promotional campaign that the White House launched last year called It's On Us. Um, they, um, they are asking in this campaign for pledges of personal commitment by, um, by students and by administrators on campuses to keep men and women safe, men and women both safe from sexual assault and not be bystanders. Uh, following the launch, the White House successfully recruited a number of organizations um, in college sports to come on as partners, and the Big East has signed on to that. So we, the ACC, the Big Ten, the A-10, the USOC, and a number of other media and corporate partners, including um, some very big names, uh, have signed on. And Big East schools, including Villanova, have conducted a host of activities in support of the campaign, including PSAs, uh, bystander training. There's an internal program here called Where is the Love that's being initiated through the Office of Health Promotion. Um, that are all going to be very, very important to this effort. Um, and, you know, one might call this a case of an ounce of prevention being worth a pound of cure, and I, you know, I certainly hope that's the case. So with that, I'm, I'm going to close. Um, I want to thank uh, Andrew and Vince again for having me. Go Nova. I don't know if there's time for a few questions, but if the guys allow it, I'll be happy to take a couple. Thanks very much. Yes, in the back. Are you talking at the conference level or are you talking about at the institutional level? Yeah. Yes, the costs are going up um, for sure. Uh, you know, the revenues have gone up, but the costs as well. Um, you know, these are important equations that people like Vince and now Mark Jackson, who's the director of athletics here, deal with every single day. Um, and that, I think, you know, I think that is going to be the ongoing challenge for athletic departments around the country, making sure that they're offering an equitable number of opportunities to their men's and women's student athletes, um, keeping up with the costs of business as tuitions go up, as cost of attendance and other enhanced benefits to student athletes become the law of the land. Um, you're trying to stay competitive so that top student athletes will come to schools like this one, and that sometimes means having to invest more in travel and facilities and the like. So that's the you know that's the day to day. I will tell you that the you know the Big East Conference uh, we're in a good spot. You know our conference, among other revenues uh, uh, that we bring in, has a very strong revenue stream from our national television agreement with Fox Sports. So that brings money into the conference to to pay for the rights that were sold to them, mostly in men's basketball, so that's an important revenue stream for the conference. Um, but, um, you know, but these costs are challenging, and, and the, the, the frame of costs, I, I would say, you know, very much is part of the ongoing discussion about the state of women's sports and Olympic sports, and, and I think that's where this very important dialogue you know, has to happen. Yes?
Well, in, in women's sports, you know, I, if, if what you read into my remarks was a little bit of a roadmap, I, I, I hope that, you know, that women's sports continue to grow, that the opportunities increase and not lessen, um, that the favorable treatment that has begun to hit, you know, in the women's sports side of the ledger continues to, you know, happen, um, that, um, you know, programs, as I said, recognize that it's not just about what Title IX makes, you know, makes possible, but is there, are there ways for women's sports to help themselves through revenue-generating initiatives, including philanthropy? If, if we can have more of that, then I think it ensures that the future will stay very bright. I, I would you know, hope that um, more women have the op kinds of opportunities I had to progress in my career, to, um, to have a leadership position, and not just in sports, by the way, um, that, that, you know, that it can happen in, in you know, many other spheres. Um, you know, for the Big East Conference, of course, you know, we want our women's teams to do well. You know, men's basketball is a bit of an engine for us, but we have high hopes for our women's basketball programs in the Big East. Um, you know, we'd love to win a national championship in both sports. And so we're, you know, in dialogue about our schools, about what it's going to take for that to happen. It would be great in 2026 to be able to say we've won a national championship or two in both sports um, as a conference. Um, you know, and I guess the last thing I would say is, you know, I've got daughters of my own. Um, my oldest daughter is graduated from college. She's working and now trying to get a job in the television business. Or trying to, she's got one. She's trying to move up. My younger daughter is a junior in college. She has an interest in being a doctor. You know, these are things that I, I really couldn't dream about when I was a young kid. So for my daughters and for, you know, this <laughs> legion of young women who are sort of behind us, um, I, you know, I hope that what, what's happened, you know, before they came along um, can support what they're doing, can serve as a little bit of an inspiration. And I certainly hope, you know, I think my daughters are going to have certain types of challenges that I might not have had, but I think they're going to have opportunities that I didn't have either. And so as a parent, you know, I would hope that in, in 10 years, you know, they have good stories to tell, you know, as well, just like I did. Great. Thanks, Andrew. Thanks, everybody.